In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. And before we get started, I'm going to do a little soliloquy here, so bear with me. Yesterday, January 3rd, marked the 10-year anniversary of when I started theartofmanliness.com. The very first article I published was How to Shave Like Your Grandpa, which is about safety razor shaving. I know that's how a lot of you discovered the site. Didn't think it was be my full-time job. I was a second-year law student, 25 years old. I thought I'd be an oil and gas attorney, but here we are, 10 years later. It's been a wild and crazy ride. Since then, we've published some books based off the site, started the podcast, which has grown into this, this thing I never imagined it would grow into. A lot of people to thank to get where we are today. First, my wife, my partner in crime in this thing, Kate. Thank you with the editing, the writing, the just taking care of the administrative tasks. Also, Jeremy Anderberg, our managing editor, jack of all trades, podcast producer, and all the other people who've contributed to the art of manliness, either via content or helping with the backend stuff. Thank you to all of you guys. And also, thank you, our audience, the, our readers, podcast listeners. Thanks to you guys who've been with us since the very beginning. I know a lot of you, and if I have to interact with you, thank you for sticking with us. And thanks for all of you who joined us along the way. There's You've got a million choices, places to check and get content or read things. So it, it means a lot to us that you've decided that we're one of those options, one of those things you do. Also, thanks for the letters of support you've given us over the years and encouragement. It really means a lot. So uh, thank you. And here's the 10 more. So uh, let's get started with today's show because it's a good one I'm excited about. Ulysses S. Grant is a historical figure who's often portrayed in a not so flattering light. Many Americans know him as a drunk and a businessman who found himself thrust into generalship during the Civil War and led the Union to victory, not because of his military genius, but simply because he happened to be on the side that had more men and more weapons. The story then goes that Grant parlayed his military success into a career in politics where he led a failed presidential administration mired in corruption and later died penniless. That's the story you often hear about Grant, but my guest today argues that this common portrayal doesn't come close to capturing the complexity of this American leader. In fact, if you look at Grant more closely, you can find a shining example of courage, resilience, and quiet dignity. My guest's name is Ron Chernow, and he's the author of several seminal best-selling biographies, including ones on Alexander Hamilton, that's the one that that musical everyone's talking about is based on, George Washington, and John D. Rockefeller. In his latest biography, he's trained his lens on the life of Ulysses S. Grant. Ron and I began our discussion talking about Grant's upbringing and how it influenced his unflappable yet passive personality. We then discussed the real extent of Grant's alcoholism and how it hurt him throughout his career and how he managed it throughout his life. Ron then explains how someone who had such a passive and tender personality developed an aggressive new military strategy that would serve as a template for modern warfare. From there, we look at the lessons that can be learned from the way Grant handled lead surrender at Appomattox Courthouse and Reconstruction. We then discuss Grant's presidency, including whether Grant was to blame for the corruption in his administration and the oft-overlooked successes he had while president. And we end our conversation with the argument that Grant's quiet, dignified professionalism is a much-needed example in today's flashy and overly self-promotional world. Really great show. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash grant. All right, Ron Chernow, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Brett. 
So you have written some of the most influential biographies in the 20th and 21st century. Of course, there's Hamilton, which was adapted into the hit Broadway musical, biography about Washington, John D. Rockefeller, and your latest is about General Ulysses S. Grant. My first question is a two-parter. First, generally, how do you decide which figures you're going to spend, I imagine, years researching and writing about? Yeah, I now spend about five or six years, you know, per book. And I always say that for a biographer, there's no more important question than the uh, choice of uh, subject, because if you choose the wrong person, nothing can go right. If you choose the right person, nothing can go wrong. And it's a little bit like marriage in that, uh, in that respect. And I think that I've been very, very lucky in the people that I've uh, chosen. And one of the things that I look for, I'm looking for more than just telling an interesting yarn, although I hope the person has had a fascinating life, but I've kind of been looking for the people whom I felt were creating basic building blocks of American politics and business and society, and where I felt that their story was also uh, the perfect vehicle for telling the story of an entire period of American history. So that this is a history lesson for the readers, but I hope that it's so entertaining that they don't notice that as they're absorbing all of this information. And why Grant this time? Well, Grant, you know, I had I'd always had a fantasy about uh, doing a big, sweeping, dramatic saga of the Civil War and Reconstruction. And Grant is the figure who really unites those two periods. Had Abraham Lincoln lived, he would have been the uh, the figure. But Grant is right in the center of everything happening in both the Civil War and Reconstruction. And I felt that while Americans tend to know a lot about the Civil War and sometimes in extraordinary detail, they knew little or nothing about Reconstruction. And if you know everything about the Civil War and nothing about Reconstruction, you have, as it were, walked out in the middle of the drama because the North wins the war militarily, but one could probably argue that the South then wins the war politically afterwards. And so Grant was a very, very important figure in terms of giving me that lens through which to look at all of these events. Well, and despite being such a, a central figure in both the Civil War and Reconstruction, Grant often gets overlooked as a president, even sometimes a military commander. A lot of the praise is given to some of the Southern because they're, oh, they they were the best at, you know, at West Point, like General Lee. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, um, one thing I should have mentioned in terms of how I choose subjects is I have a contrarian streak in my nature. So I love nothing more than to take a figure whom I feel has been forgotten or neglected or misunderstood in some way. I did this with Hamilton. People forget now that the musical is such a sensation. When I started working on Hamilton in 1998, people uh, had forgotten who he was, and he was fading into obscurity. And I felt that with Grant, Grant had been one of the major Americans of the second half of the 19th century, probably second only to, to Lincoln. You just have to look at the size of Grant's tomb, which is the largest mausoleum in North America, to realize, you know, <clears throat> how important he was considered at the time. So how did that kind of get lost over the, the years? Well, I think what happened after the, the Civil War, that the South badly battered and defeated in an attempt to restore its pride, a school of thought of historians and Confederate generals and politicians started called the, the Lost Cause, which really began in many ways to rewrite the story of the of, of the Civil War. Uh, instead of the Civil War being caused by slavery, they said the war had been caused by uh, states' rights. And they really kind of wrapped the Confederacy in a rather romantic aura. 
said that Robert E. Lee was considered not only the great general, but a perfect and aristocratic figure as well. And as part of that glorification of Lee, there was a corresponding denigration of Grant. And then what happens after the Civil War, when Grant is, after all, during his two terms as president, he's president overseeing Reconstruction, which much of the white South hated. You know, they really had a vested interest in running down his presidency, which did have a lot of scandals. That was not an invention of, you know, Southern historians at all. But I tried to show in the book that the scandals, while they happened and they were important, were not nearly as important as other things that happened in Grant's presidency that have been forgotten, such as his successful campaign to crush the Ku Klux Klan, which I think was one of the most farsighted and courageous actions undertaken by any American president. It was huge. So let's get into Grant himself, because this after reading this book, I, I fell in love with Grant. He was just an interesting character, had his demons that he fought, but I think that made him stronger in the process. Grant was known throughout his life for his unflappable, cool temperament. Was that, was that something he had to consciously develop, or was that just his genetics and due to his upbringing? It's a very good question, Brett, because he grows up in southwestern corner of Ohio in a very strict Methodist household. And he has these two completely dissimilar parents. His father, Jesse, was of a kind of arrogant, pushing, thrusting kind of character. His mother, Hannah, was very kind of prim and quiet and pious. And Grant clearly seems to, to imitate his mother in that respect. Now, whether that was genetic or whether that was an identification uh, with her, it's hard to say. I wish that we could put Ulysses on the couch, but we, uh, but we can't. But one thing that we know both from his behavior as a child and his behavior as an uh, adult is that he had an aversion to the kind of bragging in which his father engaged. And so if there was a genetic component to this modesty, it was certainly something that was reinforced by his constantly reacting uh, against this father who was always pushing him forward. And Ulysses was always pushing back and develops almost a kind of what we would call passive-aggressive personality as a child. And I think it also created that stubbornness that he became known for. You see that in terms of his resisting his father rather stubbornly throughout his childhood. Well, that sort of passiveness, that's how he got his name, Ulysses S. Grant. Yes, I mean, that's kind of says it all, because he was really, he was born Hiram Ulysses Grant, which saddled him with the very unfortunate initials of H-U-G or Hug. Well, you could imagine the merciless teasing from the other boys. So he dropped the Hiram, he became Ulysses Grant. And then what happened, his father decided that he was going to go to West Point. Ulysses didn't decide that he was going to go. His father decided for him, and Ulysses went reluctantly. And when the local congressman nominated Grant for the Academy, he made a mistake and sent in the name as Ulysses S. Grant, and that bureaucratic era stuck. And Grant, in later years, would when asked what the S stood for, would tell people it stood for absolutely nothing. But it kind of is a statement about him. It has a symbolic quality that um, this name <laughs> that we know him by was something imposed on him rather than something that he had fully chosen. And another paradox with Grant was he was 
unflappable, cool, almost fearless. I mean, like we'll talk about in the war, like bombs would be going off by him. He would just would ignore it. But at the same time, he had this aversion towards just death. Like even, even when he ate food, like the meat had to be like charred to a charcoal briquette. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, what happened when he was uh, growing up in the small towns in southwest uh, Ohio, his father was a tanner. And in the main town of his boyhood, Georgetown, uh, the tannery was directly across the street from their two-story house. And so the fumes from the tannery would waft into Ulysses' second-floor bedroom, and he found it revolting. There was nothing that he hated more than working in the tannery, not only because the odors, there would be rats running around. It was a very vile atmosphere. And this left him with a permanent squeamishness so that for the rest of his life, he could never eat meat swimming in its own blood or juices. Every meat would have to be burned to a crisp. He said he could never, you know, eat the flesh of anything that walked on two, two legs. He was extraordinarily finicky about food. And those were kind of childhood aversions that he never overcame. Kind of funny for a man who was derided as this filthy butcher that he was really so squeamish. It's interesting. Let's talk about Grant. He goes to West Point. Uh, what was he like as a cadet at West Point? Well, you know, it's often said that he, that he was a disaster. He, he was really, I would say, lackluster. He graduated in the middle of his class, 21, in the class of 39. He didn't distinguish himself in terms of tactics or artillery or anything like that. His best subject was, was math. In fact, it's very funny that his highest ambition when he graduated from the academy was to be an assistant math professor there, not a full math professor, an assistant math professor. That was the height of his ambition. But one quality that really stood out for me when I was examining his years at West Point was that uh, the other cadets respected his quiet judgment. So people would come to him to arbitrate uh, disputes. And that's kind of where I begin to see the military leader, this, the person who was the calm center of the storm, someone who was known for his fairness, for almost a kind of judicial temperament. And you see the way that the other cadets uh, respected him, not because, I mean, there are certain boys who are respected because they're very charismatic or others because they're, you know, they're great athletes or very dynamic. That was not the case with Grant. It was sort of these quieter virtues that people picked up on. And that really anticipates the way that his men reacted to him. There was no kind of flash and strut about Grant as a general. It was just quiet confidence and people respected his sense of honesty and his sense of fairness. So after he graduated from West Point, he went to go serve in the Mexican-American War. What was his position there? What did he do? Well, that, you know, that experience, because kind of for four years, he's down in Texas, Louisiana, and then uh, Mexico during the Mexican War. And it was extremely important to his training as a general because he was the quartermaster. Let me say a couple of things about being the quartermaster. Quartermaster is the person, in other words, who's coming up with all the provisions and the supplies. And so this is perfect training because he becomes a master of the logistics of moving you know, supplies to the troops. And when it comes to the Civil War, he's going to be overseeing armies kind of across a 1,500-mile area. So kind of the movement of troops and material and the mastery of supplies is going to be a very important component of his success as a general. So that's one thing. The other thing that I loved kind of researching when he's actually in the Mexican War itself was that as the quartermaster, he was not obligated 
to be in any combat. That is, he had a position behind the lines, which he had chosen to take it. He could have avoided any danger, but he voluntarily chose to be in combat in every single battle. So th- this is true, true bravery. And there, there, there were moments that he did things that were extraordinarily daring. At one point, they were low on ammunition, and he got on you know, horseback in this town, and he kind of rode along the side of the horse, kind of his body slung on the side of the horse. And so the horse is kind of dashing across these intersections where it's being fired at by the, the Mexicans. And Grant, almost kind of like a rodeo, you know, rider is on the other, the far side of, of the horse, you know, sort of grabbing onto the top of the saddle. And so I think it shows his bravery and it also develops this nuts and bolts knowledge of the way that an army works. So Grant was really someone who knew the army from the top to the bottom. And did he have any interactions with any of the Confederate soldiers? And how did that help him later on during the war? It was absolutely important because, you know, it's interesting for anyone who's read about the Civil War, you read about the the Mexican War and the entire, it's the same cast of characters. Um, uh, The only difference being, the same cast of characters, both Union and Confederate generals, they all, you know, had their first military experience in the Mexican War. The only difference being the chief generals are people like Winfield Scott and Zachary Taylor, who were not, well, Winfield Scott was involved at the very beginning of the Civil War, but not for long. But, you know, the people who would be the significant Union and Confederate generals in the Mexican War, you know, their kind of rank of captain, major, grant is, gets to know Robert E. Lee. Lee was already a major, so Lee was a little bit older and, and, and higher up and already doing very, very impressive things. But I think that that experience was absolutely crucial for Grant because he had a superb memory. And he had like an inventory of all of these generals who would later face him. And so during the war, he would repeatedly make reference to having known these Confederate generals during the Mexican War and that he knew their strengths and weaknesses. And there were quite a number of battles where his sense, particularly in certain cases, his sense of the perceived incompetence of Confederate generals made him more sure of himself and and certainly more aggressive. So it was a very important experience. What I was struck by Grant was, you know, people often complain about, oh, like this year at Thanksgiving, everyone's like, don't talk about politics at Thanksgiving, yada, yada. But like Grant, like his best friend, his best man at his wedding was General Longstreet. Yeah. His his father was an ardent Democrat, which at the time they were pro-slavery. How did Grant manage that, those, those divisions, those schisms politically in his personal life? Well, it's a very good question, you know, because Grant is fighting long before the firing on Fort Sumter. Grant is fighting his own private civil war. He's born into an abolitionist, strongly abolitionist family in Ohio. He marries into a slave-owning family in Missouri, and he's caught in the crossfire between, on the one hand, this overbearing abolitionist father and this no less overbearing slave-owning father-in-law. And I think that, and, and Grant, by his own admission, you know, did not start out as a, a raving abolitionist. After all, he did marry into a slave-owning family. But I think that it gave Grant an understanding of the culture of both North and South. I think that one can plausibly argue that, you know, his behavior at Appomattox Courthouse, where when Lee surrenders, Grant is very uh, magnanimous, that he was someone who understood 
the psychology of the South as well as the North. And it may have come from the fact that in his personal life, he had for many years by the time of the war, had straddled that North-South, you know, free labor, slave labor divide. So in a way, he was the perfect person for that moment. So Grant had a, you know, I would say... It wasn't lackluster, but just nothing nothing outstanding about his military yeah. career in the Mexican mm-hmm. War. Mm-hmm. After the Mexican War, he becomes a civilian and tries to do put his hand in business, but that didn't go very well for him. Yeah, I mean, you know, first he's, he's posted, he still is in the regular army, he's posted to a series of frontier garrisons where he's kind of lonely and depressed and he starts drinking. He can't be with his wife and children because he can't afford it. He's drummed out of the army in 1854 in a drinking episode. And then he returns to St. Louis. He and his wife, Julia, are on property that they had received as a wedding gift from Colonel Dent, Grant's slave-owning father-in-law. Grant really makes a go, tries to make a go of it at uh, farming, but fails, and not for lack of hard work. He's reduced by, around 1857, he's reduced to selling firewood on street corners in St. Louis when one of his old army buddies runs into him and Grant looks all you know, disheveled and depressed and he's aghast and he says, Grant, what are you doing? And Grant says, I'm trying to settle the problem of poverty. <laughs> and, that, and that Christmas, Grant has to pawn his watch in order to buy gifts for his family. So he's really hitting bottom at that uh, point. And uh, Grant was never, never lucky in in business before the war. Yeah, well, he wasn't lucky afterwards either. We'll talk about that. But Not me, exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about, his, you brought up his alcoholism. Uh, that's something he's known for, that he was just a drunk. And But what was his relationship with alcohol really like? Were the rumors overblown, or did he really have a problem with alcohol? Well, you know, a num- number of um, recent uh, biographies, admiring biographies of uh, Grant of Argado, you know, the, the reputation for drinking, you know, was all overblown, and those were stories invented by malicious rival generals during the, the war. I, I find, you know, that, and I detail, I researched this in great detail, that Grant was a genuine alcoholic. He had all the earmarks of an alcoholic by his own admission. He couldn't take just one drink. It became then a second, a third, and a fourth. Also, by everyone's description, even a single glass of uh, alcohol, he would begin to slur his words and stumble about, and he would undergo this personality change from a very repressed character to a very um, uh, jovial character. I think that the reason there's been so much confusion on this issue is I discovered that Grant had a definite pattern of drinking. He was a periodic drinker. He was a binge drinker. He could go for even two or three months without touching a drop of alcohol, only to have a two or three day bender. And what I discovered, he never drank on the eve of a battle, certainly never drank during battle, but he had enough control over the problem that after big battle, when the tension was off, he would then make a side trip to another town where his soldiers could not see him, and then he would in, indulge. And according to Sherman, he could come back smelling fresh as a rose, you know, from this. So that there were a lot of people who worked very, very closely with him, you know, who, in all honesty, said, I never saw him, saw him touch, touch a drop of liquor. And I discovered why, because he had enough control that they did not see him you know, in these episodes. So it might have been like a psychological release because the guy was super buttoned up, right? Very buttoned. Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of someone, you're absolutely right, someone who on the one hand was very tightly buttoned up and on the other hand is carrying unbearable pressure. 
I mean, it's kind of more than a figure of speech to say that Grant was carrying the weight of the nation on his shoulders, particularly the other, you know, union generals. So many of them proved incompetent that it was it was all up to, to Grant. And before Lincoln brought Grant east in March 1864, you know, in the Eastern and the Virginia theater of the war, Grant had been, you know, preceded by about five or six miserable failures as as generals. So he was facing tremendous pressure. And remember these you know, these Civil War battles were gigantic and bloody. It could be as many as a uh, hundred, hundred and fifty thousand men uh, going into um, uh, to battle. The casualties could run up into the thousands or even tens of thousands in uh, certain uh, cases. And Grant said later in the war, because people were impressed during battle, he would kind of fire off these orders. But Grant, you know, after the war, talked about the fact that he knew that every order he gave was going to, however, you know, successful it was, was going to lead to the deaths of hundreds or thousands of, of men. And, you know, how inwardly paralyzing that could feel. So I can completely understand why someone with his drinking history, or even someone not with his drinking history, would crave the release of that tension periodically. So as you said, you mentioned when the Civil War started, the Union was at, they were actually having a hard time against the Confederacy, despite yeah. outmanning and outarming them. What what did Grant do different from the generals that were in charge at the beginning that allowed him to start having these victories? Yeah, it's it's a you know, it's a, it's a very very good uh, question because I think that well, first of all, because of Grant's pre-war failures, I think that he becomes very early in the war, a colonel and a brigadier general, and within 10 months, he's a, 10 to 12 months, he's major general. And so I think that Grant, because of his pre-war failure, he has nothing to lose and everything to, to gain, you know, in this, in this war, just from a, a personal standpoint. And he is, I mean, he shows speed, flexibility, daring. He is aggressive, and he's confident in his aggression. Let me just give you a few things that William Tecumseh Sherman said about Grant. Of course, Sherman was Grant's chief commander and knew him best. He talked about at Grant's simple faith in success. He said, I can liken it to nothing other than a Christian's faith in his Savior, that Grant always believed that he was going to win and that this gave him confidence and gave him the confidence to be aggressive. Sherman also said that it gave him the confidence. There was always a moment in every battle, he said, where the outcome seemed to be hanging in the balance, where the commander on either side who had the confidence to take the offensive, you know, would win. And Grant was always that person. And Sherman said that Grant seemed to know, he used the word divine, the hour, when to kind of, you know, strike back at the enemy. And so you would think that this might be a trait common to to generals. It was not. Uh, There were many generals particularly in the Union Army uh, in the East. They were whining, they were procrastinating, they just wanted to drill and train, you know, and equip their army, but not lead them into to battle. They always felt that the more, you know, the more training they had, the better they were going to be. Grant had a very different attitude because Grant realized that every day, every week that went by of, of his training his own armies, that the enemy was simultaneously <laughs> strengthening, you know, their armies. And so the delay did not necessarily work in your favor. You're not the only one, you know, who was reinforcing your, your army. So there are kind of a lot of, you know, different things. I think also, 
you know, we get into a different kind of discussion in terms of when Grant becomes general in chief in March 1864. You know, and there I think the answer uh, is a few things. Number one, he decides that all of the various Union armies have been operating in separate theaters of war independently of each other. He decides that he's going to coordinate them and kind of simultaneously launch armies over a 1,500-mile area. So he's really supervising four distinct armies at the same time. He can do that. Couldn't have been done in any previous war. He could do that because of the telegraph and, and the railroad. And again, very, very important, his mastery of logistics goes back to what we were talking about before, about uh, Grant as quartermaster. Sherman said, I was contrasting Lee and Grant, Sherman said uh, Lee would attack the front porch. Grant would attack the bedroom and the kitchen. I'm not sure what Sherman meant about the bedroom, but I know what he meant about the kitchen, which they would cut off your food supply so that when he has, during the last year of the war, he has Lee pinned down in Richmond and Petersburg in Virginia. Lee's army is being fed by five railroads in one canal, and Grant systematically cuts off all five of the railroads and the canal, you know, starving Lee out, and then Lee is finally forced to give up Richmond and Petersburg, and he flees out to Appomattox Courthouse, where Grant and Sheridan et al. uh, surround Lee's army and capture it and effectively end the war. So he, in a lot of ways, Grant introduced modern warfare that we're, you know, we see today. Absolutely modern, modern warfare, yeah, because he, he's, he's exploiting the technology of warfare. And interestingly enough, by the time he became general-in-chief in 1864, a lot of Grant's conclusions had become Lincoln's conclusions as well. The North had a superiority in manpower and manufacturing, but it would only really work if there were simultaneous attacks along a very kind of long front, because what had been happening before that, since the South had a smaller population, was that if one place was attacked by the Union Army, the you know, Confederate Army would then kind of rush all these reinforcements there. Then there was another attack, then they would rush the reinforcements uh, there. But Grant realizes that if you, you know, attack both of those places simultaneously, <laughs> neither can reinforce the other. And then suddenly the South would begin to feel the weakness that it had in terms of population and manufacturing ability. So he was a very, he was a very great strategist. And I think the image of him just as a you know, butcher and he threw you know, tens of thousands of young men against the enemy, it doesn't hold up because if you look at uh, Virginia, going back to Irvin um, McDowell and um, George McClellan, there had been Joe Hooker, Ambrose Burnside, George Gordon Meade, who am I leaving out, John Pope. They had the same advantage in terms of the northern population manufacturing, and they had not been able to defeat the Confederate Army or Lee in Virginia. It was Grant who was able to, to do that. So something more was going on than simple you know, northern superiority in uh, manpower and materiel. So we, you mentioned earlier Grant's being magnanimous when Lee surrendered. It was unconditional, yes. but he, he still yeah. allowed Lee and the Confederate soldiers to maintain some dignity and honor in the process. How, how did Lee and, and the South in general respond to Grant's magnanimity? Oh, very positively. You know, Grant allowed the Confederate soldiers to, to keep their horses and mules. He allowed the officers to keep their firearms. The Confederate army was really starving at that point. He issued 25,000 rations. And most importantly, he did not allow his men to 
gloat or even celebrate in any way. He refused. He refused to uh, enter Richmond after the fall of Richmond, even though it was the capital of the Confederacy. He said to his wife, Julia, he said, defeat is bitter enough for these people without my kind of throwing it in their, their face. So he was really very, very high-minded. And so he became, you know, at least briefly heroic in the South for his generosity because he had been, you know, kind of bogeyman of the South uh, before then. And then people saw how, you know, gracious he could be in, um, in, in victory. It didn't, it didn't last long, not because of Grant, but because of the situation that, you know, developed in the South as blacks were given citizenship and under the 13th Amendment, equal rights under the 14th, and then voting rights under the 15th, which then provoked a very violent uh, backlash in the white South. So let's talk about his presidency. Did he really want to be president or was this another instance of Grant passively being carried into something against his will? I think it was a little bit of both. I think that Grant was always more ambitious than he cared to admit. After all, you know, Sherman was constantly warning him. Sherman thought the ways of Washington were evil and always, you know, was always warning Grant not to uh, go to Washington, not to be drawn into the political world. So this was something that Grant did willingly. I think he also realized that his political attractiveness was greater if he seemed to be kind of the bashful, modest hero, which had, you know, large element of reality to it. So Grant is kind of swept along, but Grant has a way of sort of being there to be swept along in a way that shows he is very much in sympathy with what is happening with him, he was—he was the great hero of the uh, of the war. So he occupied this uh, special place. But I think that's something that he he wanted, and this happens with all presidents once in office. You know, they get a taste of power, they get accustomed to you know being in the in, in the White House, and they're all very reluctant to to give it up. What was his uh, leadership style as president? Did he kind of carry try to carry over that military style leadership or did, did was he able to adapt? Yeah, it's an interesting story, particularly since we have, you know, a president who also had never been elected to office before. Although Grant had much more experience in the ways of Washington because he'd been general in chief. He was general in chief, you know, in the War Department in Washington after the war for four years. He was even acting Secretary of War for a time. So he wasn't as much a, uh, of a stranger as let's say Trump is to the White House. But still he made a lot of mistakes by his own admission because his style during the war as commander had been very, very secretive and had been kind of intuitive and uh, impulsive. And so what he doesn't do at first, to his later regret, he doesn't really consult people enough. He doesn't vet his appointees. He makes a lot of mistakes in terms of appointing uh, people. But I think that there is a learning curve. And he certainly does better as time goes on. But I think that you know one clear weakness of his presidency is in the appointment area, although there were some really outstanding people whom he picked. Hamilton Fish, who served all eight years as Secretary of State, is, I think, one of the really great Secretary of States in American history. Amos Ackerman, who uh, for a time was his Attorney General and uh, from Georgia and uh, brings 3,000 indictments against the Ku Klux Klan and crushes the, the Klan in the South. And there were other examples of uh, really you know, major achievements by his appointees. So it was not as is sometimes you know, caricatured that this was just completely you know, crony-ridden administration, although there was an element of, of, of that. But as I was saying earlier, it's not the whole story of his presidency. And as a result, 
you know, in 1948, historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. did a poll of American presidential historians, and they ranked Grant second from the bottom. They said that only Warren Harding of the early 1920s was uh, was worse. The most recent poll, Grant has risen to number 22, which puts him exactly at the midway point. And I think that it's going to you know rise. I, I you know I don't think that he's a great president of the caliber of a Washington or a Lincoln, but I do think that he's a major, major president, even despite the uh, the flaws in his administration. So let's talk about some of his successes as president, because we talk about the corruption. And I think you make a good point in the book that if, if there was another person besides Grant, there probably would have been corruption anyways, because it was the Gilded Age, government had expanded, et cetera. Yeah, it was a corrupt era. And also there'd been an enormous expansion of the federal government, you know, because of the, the, the war. There were numberless opportunities for graft and God knows people took advantage uh, of it. There'd been a lot of corruption in the previous administration under Johnson. There'd been a lot of corruption under uh, Abraham Lincoln as, as, as well. But, you know, the government, federal government, greatly expanded after the, the, the war, enormous amount of corruption uh, going on in Washington, also state and local um, level. And, you know, Grant, you know, rightly or wrongly becomes associated with that. I, I'd say uh, wrongly to the extent that Grant himself was not personally corrupt. He never condoned the corruption. In fact, he quite vigorously prosecuted the corruption in most of the cases. But as happens when something is on your watch, you get stuck with it. And then there is one case, the so-called whiskey ring investigation, where whiskey brewers were uh, cheating the government on revenues they owed. And one of the confederates of this conspiracy was a man named Orville Babcock, who'd worked for Grant for 14 years. He was effectively his chief of staff. And Grant is completely blind to how unscrupulous this guy is to the point where, a major mistake, Grant um, offers to sit for a deposition in Babcock's behalf, and it's taken, and Babcock is acquitted. I mean, that's kind of the place where Grant clearly crosses the line. But even there, you know, he ended up bringing his administration brought 350 indictments against the um, the whiskey ring. And so Grant would prosecute. In fact, he'd said early in that investigation, he made this famous statement, that no guilty man escape. So Grant's record with scandals is not, you know, a great one, but there are some redeeming features there. What do you think his successes are? Like, what do you think people should know about his presidency? Well, uh, you know, I think that in terms of the issues lingering from the, the Civil War, there are successes. So he feels you know, the twin aims of the war, preservation of the Union, abolition of slavery. And I think his great achievement is that he feels a personal responsibility for safeguarding the four million African Americans who'd been enslaved, who are now not only free, but are full-fledged American citizens. Thousands of them were murdered in the South by the Klan. Grant crushes the, the Klan. I think that's the great achievement of his administration. But there are others kind of less known. There's a major, major dispute with England that could easily have led to war over something called the Alabama claims. The Alabama was a ship during the Civil War outfitted in Union shipyards, and it had preyed on Union shipping throughout the war. After the war, the federal government wants kind of major compensation from the British government for the raids. And instead of going to war over the issue, Grant and his Secretary of State, Hamilton Fish, pioneer in something that's brand new. Uh, they submitted to international 
arbitration. And not only does the United States get a lot of money in the international arbitration, wars avoided, and they have established a new mode of dealing with international uh, conflict, kind of major achievement. Uh, Grant takes really the first, you know, halting steps. He should have gone farther, but he takes the first halting steps towards uh, civil service uh, uh, reform, makes major effort to clean up corruption on the Indian reservations, although the whole story of what happens to Native Americans during Grant's administration is not a pretty one at the end, even though, you know, Grant's intentions were very good. Major, major uh, achievement that I was really amazed at. Grant appoints hundreds and hundreds of blacks to uh, public office, including, you know, we have a uh, suddenly a black ambassador to, to Haiti, to Liberia, kind of first, you know, black diplomats. He appoints, even though he had, from the war, had a reputation of being anti-Semitic, he points probably more Jews to public office than all the other 19th century presidents uh, combined. And even his first uh, commissioner of Indian affairs, uh, Eli, Par- Eli Parker, is a full-blooded Seneca Sachem Indian. And so you know, we talk about diversity now. Grant seems to have been almost the one who invented it. In fact, uh, Frederick Douglass, who was a regular visitor to the White House, uh, said during the 1872 election, said Grant had been the firm, wise, vigilant, and partial protector of my race, and he counted in one department alone. Grant had appointed 250 blacks to office, so his appointment record was really outstanding in terms of groups that had been excluded uh, from federal jobs before. What was Grant's life like after the presidency? Did he still st- still stoic and cool as ever, or did he become more expressive? What What did he do in his later years? Well, he, you know, he did. He did something very, very interesting. He always had kind of wanderlust, and so he did an around-the-world trip that lasted for two years and uh, four months. He met with every head of state, every king, queen, emperor, president, prime minister, you name it, Grant um, uh, met them. And he really pioneers a brand new role for the post-presidency because he is meeting with these heads of states and he's having serious political discussions. And he begins to engage in a certain freelance diplomacy, actually uh, arbitrates an offshore island dispute between uh, Japan and China. No ex-president had ever done anything like that. We're much more accustomed today of ex-presidents, you know, let's say going to the Middle East to monitor elections or things like that. When Grant was doing these things, it was completely unheard of. And Grant had always been very, very shy about public speaking. I mean, his typical speech was like a 60-second speech where he would get up and make some jokes how he couldn't give a, give a speech and then sit down. Well, he suddenly, you know, his first stop on the tours in England in Liverpool, Manchester, and other places, you know, 100,000, 200,000 people turn out. Grant suddenly is forced to make speeches, and turns out he's a very good speaker, like everything he put his mind to. You know, he ended up doing it well and enjoying it more. So the round-the-world trip was a great triumph for him, and it was widely reported in the press what was going on. Americans felt very proud as he went around the world meeting these heads of state. And so, you know, his uh, reputation keeps rising during the trip to the point when he returns to the United States, he decides that he's going to make a run to be nominated a third time by the Republican uh, Party in uh, in Chicago. And he almost does it. He loses rather narrowly to James uh, uh, Garfield, but he very nearly got it. And 
just as he experienced business failure early in his life, he also had a, just a serious business setback later in his life. Oh God, yeah. I mean, he was he was the victim of the Bernie Madoff of his day. Again, Grant's you know unbelievable naivete never deserts him. So um, about three four years before he dies, he enters into a partnership on Wall Street with a young man named Ferdinand Ward, who was lionized as the young Napoleon of finance. Grant imagined that thanks to Ward's financial wizardry, that he Grant is worth several million dollars to be many million dollars today. Um, and then he wakes up uh, one morning in 1884 and discovers that instead of being worth several million dollars, he's worth exactly $80, that all the profits had been fictitious. And um, Ward, like Bernie Madoff, had been running a big Ponzi scheme. All the profits were fictitious. Around the same time, Grant is diagnosed with cancer of the throat and tongue, which is a very excruciating way to die. And so he had always said that he would never write his memoirs of the Civil War. He thought it was pretentious. But now he's afraid, gee, he's dying of cancer. When he dies, he was afraid that his wife, Julia, would be left destitute. So he agrees to write his memoirs, and they become the great bestseller of the 19th century and considered kind of the classic military memoir in American letters. And and Mark Twain was the publisher of that. Yeah, kind of what Mark Twain finds out, uh, Grant was about to sign a public uh, contract with the Century Publishers. Twain finds out about this and finds out that the Century people have offered Grant 10% royalty, which Twain feels is criminal. Uh, he goes to Grant and says that he will give Grant a 20% royalty or 70% of the profits. Grant ends up getting 70% of the profits and Twain is not his, Twain is really his publisher. Twain said that his involvement revolved on relatively trivial matters of grammar and punctuation. And the memoirs are so brilliantly written that, you know, people to this day are convinced that Mark Twain must have been the ghostwriter, that surely Ulysses S. Grant could not have written that. But I went down to the uh, Library of Congress when I was doing the research, and I demanded uh, that I'd be allowed to look at every page of the manuscript, and just about all of it is indeed in Grant's handwriting, except at the very end, you could see that there are some paragraphs that Grant had dictated, and they're in the hands of Grant's son or his stenographer, but uh, Twain did not write. And frankly, Twain could no more have imitated Grant's style than Grant could have imitated uh, Twain's style. And, and Grant had always, always prided himself on his writing, he prided himself on writing all his own wartime orders. He prided on writing all his own speeches and papers as president. So the, for the people who knew him, the literary triumph of the memoirs was not as great a surprise as it might have been for the public in general. And uh, you, know, you describe, you know, just as he stoically faced battle and war, like Grant did this stoic. He was in a lot of pain with this throat cancer. And there's a picture in the book of him sitting in a wicker chair bundled in a blanket, and he's just trying to, I mean, you can tell he's probably in a lot of pain, but he knows he has to get this done before he dies. Oh, absolutely, yeah, because he's, you know, he's sitting there kind of all, with a wool cap on his head, and he has a scarf over his neck, and people said the tumor bulging on the side of his neck, you know, is the size of a baseball or a grapefruit. Uh, the man is in excruciating pain. Uh, he said that simply swallowing a glass of water 
the sensation was like swallowing a glass of molten lead. This is a gruesome way to, to die. And what he ended up doing, with great bravery, uh, was that he found that every time he drank a glass of water or he had any food, that the pain would be terrible and he would need to take painkillers, opiates. They would fog his brain. So every day he would try to go for four or five hours without eating or drinking anything just so that his mind would be completely clear for the um, the writing. And he, he, he managed, um, he, he wrote this during the final year of his life, in great pain, knew he was dying, uh, and managed to produce a book that's more than 300,000 words of sparkling prose. So it's an extraordinary uh, achievement. And the lovely thing about writing about Grant, and I hope for people reading the the book is that he just continues to surprise you with what, what he's he's done. Sometimes he surprises you, you know, that he keeps on making certain blunders uh, over and over uh, again. But he does kind of grow, keep growing into a much bigger and richer figure uh, throughout his life. And, and why do you think? I mean, what what remains compelling about Grant in our modern age? So, as you mentioned, that at one point he was listed as this, you know, near the bottom of the you know, presidents. Now he's kind of rising. What what do you think is going on there? I think what's going on is I love a line that Walt Whitman said about Grant. He said, "Nothing heroic, and yet the greatest hero." And I think that what he meant by that was that um, Grant was the type of hero who was not trying to be heroic. He was just keeping his head down and in his quiet, determined fashion, doing his patriotic duty. And in the course of doing that, he became uh, heroic. But he was not driven, as many great figures in history are, he was not driven by lust for fame or power or fortune or uh, any of those things. The fame, the power, the fortune, those things were kind of a byproduct of doing his military duty, of doing his uh, patriotic uh, duty. You know, And this is kind of a sense of uh, honor and modesty and integrity and patriotism, unfortunately, is in very short supply, you know, in the modern political um, uh, world, which is kind of a, you know, world of salesmanship and self-promotion, you know, uh, all the the time. We get it from the White House, but it's not limited to to the White House, you know, uh, at all. It's kind of the style of the world that we uh, live in. And so I think that there's something very, very compelling. But the story of Ulysses S. Grant, you know, came from this a small town, modest, understated man, you know, whose credo was essentially, I'll let my deeds uh, speak for themselves. I'm not going to be promoting myself all the time. And he always, time he was a young man, he wanted to be recognized for himself rather than his telling you how wonderful he was. He wanted you to see how wonderful he was and just let his um, actions speak for themselves. Yes, he was an antidote to the, the world of social media. Well, um, Ron, this has been a great conversation. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. My guest today was Ron Chernow. He is the author of some of the most influential biographies. His latest is Grant. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find our show notes at aom.is slash grant, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, you've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please share the show with your friends. Word of mouth is how this show grows. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.